0: Good morning, everyone. Let's get some housekeeping stuff out of the way. Um, Next week, we're going to be doing a um, Christmas Eve service starting, I think we decided, five. Is that what we decided? So we'll do Christmas Eve, five to six here. Do you know if the other group's going to join us? Justin, have you talked to Max or anybody? Some? Okay, we're going to have a few few of the church that meets here after we do um, on Sunday afternoons. They're going to join us as well. So we're going to do a five to six uh, sermon, worship session, obviously, sing our uh, Christmas songs. And um, and then after that, we'll have a kind of a potluck dessert. So desserts and coffee and tea and, and just kind of hang out and fellowship together next door. Uh, so plan on that. And then after that, I, I was reading through... Preparing the sermon for today, and I was I was reading through uh, some different passages in regards to the law, and I just looked up this passage at Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, where it talks about Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, "I I did not come. Uh, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." And I just kind of started looking at the before he says that, and after he says that, and what was the context uh, and the content of the scriptures. And I thought, you know, I I don't know if I've ever preached through the Sermon on the Mount in ten years. And so I I found it interesting that Jesus gives the blessings, and then uh, he talks about the salt and the light, and then he gets into uh, abolishing or fulfilling the law, and then immediately after that he starts to get into the details of uh, his teaching about anger and and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving your enemies and giving to the needy and just all these really teachings that you can go back to the Old Covenant and you can see some of the, the scripture, the teachings in the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments. So I sent out a message to a few guys and said, hey, I'd like to do a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. So starting January, uh, I believe it would be 2nd or 1st. Isn't January 1st, Sunday? So, we're not taking that day off, so, uh, we're just taking Christmas Day, but January 1st, uh, we're going to start the series of the Sermon on the Mount, so I uh, hope that you guys can be there. I'm guessing it's a six to eight to ten week series because there's a lot of content in that passage, in that, that entire uh, sermon. So, but today, I want to talk about work. Uh, there's work uh, versus work is what I titled this. So Kyle, if you want to title this later on, you can just call it work versus work or just work. And depending on how you use the word, it can really change the meaning or the con- the context can change the meaning of how the word is used. And for example, tomorrow um, uh, or next week, whatever, I say, "Hey, how was your how was your day Monday?" And you say, "Well, I went to work." Whether I went to the bank or I went to the the coal mine, or I went to the job site, I went to the factory, I went to the, the golf course, some people work at a golf course, I went to the ball field, I went to the shop, um, and I'm like, oh, okay, so I went to work, and then the, another way to use it is, uh, it was a lot of work, like Titus would do today, well, we, we warmed up a foundation wall, or I dug a ditch, or uh, I packed out an elk, or I roofed a house, you know, I mean, you look at things like, it was a lot of work, it was a, it was difficult. And another way to use that word would be when I'd say, hey, good work, son. Um, you know, you really led that goose perfectly. Uh, or that's a really nice tie, or a fly that you tie. That's that's good work, son. Kind of like, good job. Um, you really grilled that steak well. That was good work. So there's different ways to use that word, uh, work. And as we get into the message this morning, I think it's under- important to understand that everything in Scripture is uh, it needs to be looked at it within the context in which it's written, and I think um, entire theologies and belief systems have been built upon teachings and passionately defended on some things that maybe aren't true and that don't hold water because things were taken out of content, or con- I'm sorry, out of context. I'm struggling with those two words in the text message. I had to clarify. Greece and justice, you know, content uh, with the text. But out of context, a lot of times we take something out of context and we develop an entire belief system on that. Um, I'll I'll give you an example. Uh, In Romans chapter 10, you know, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Rome and he's talking in in Romans 10. And I have, if you need your notes and Bible verses, they're they're back there. Uh, I made about 20 copies, but... In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, Brothers, 1 through 4, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, if you look back a couple of verses, he's talking about the Israelites. And in the New International Version, it actually says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for the Israelites is that they may be saved. But, so, he's talking about his, his, his brethren, his Israelite brethren. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge... For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, I believe in the NIV it says, I'm going off memory here, um, for I can testify that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. And so this group of people that Paul is referring to, the Israelites, they have a, a zeal for God, they have a passion for God, but it's not based on truth, it's not based on knowledge. They sought to establish a righteousness of their own, meaning a work of the law, but it wasn't a righteousness that was uh, based on uh, faith, which is the righteousness that God shares with us in Scripture. And so, my point being that oftentimes we will misunderstand Scripture... And we'll base an entire theology off of an incorrect understanding of a word or an idea. And we see that across Christianity when it comes to this concept of works. We see it all in Scripture. We see it, the idea of works in Scripture, and then we see it in the different belief systems that are out there when you start looking at works when it comes to our Christian faith or works when it comes to being an Israelite. So, Some believe in Christianity that works are necessary. I I can point to 15 different websites and 20 different churches. They believe that works are necessary. Some believe that anything you do, by adding to the sacrifice that Jesus did on the cross, anything you do, it nullifies the sacrifice on the cross. It nullifies grace. It takes it away. Some believe, and I'm not going to tell you where I stand, I'm going to let you guys determine what the Bible says through this message. Some believe that if you're a Christian and you don't follow the works of the law, meaning the ones that can be followed, then you're a false teacher. You're an error. If you're a Christian and, and you don't follow the, the festivals or the feasts, anything that you know, you should follow according to the Old Testament, if you don't do that, then you're an error. Some people believe that if you teach good works are necessary for salvation, you're a false teacher. Some believe that if you don't teach that works are necessary for salvation, you're a false teacher. As you can see, there's belief systems all across the board. No matter where you look, you look at a theology, you look at a website, you you talk to a preacher, whoever it is, you talk to an elder, you talk to a member of the church, and they'll have this belief system that says, this is what I believe, and they will go to war over that teaching. And 19 years ago, Around this time, right around this time, I don't remember the exact day. Brenda, do you? When we went up on the Grand Mesa and I got down on bended knee and I asked, I bumbled my way through the proposal. What was the date? Do you remember the date? That sounded like a guess. That sounded like a guess. But I'm going to take your word for it, okay? All I know is you said yes. I bumbled my way through the proposal and she said yes. That's a whole other story about patience and finding a Christmas tree 500 yards off the road instead of right next to the road. But anyway, I bumbled my way through it. She said yes. And then after that proposal, after the acceptance of the proposal, we're in the planning stages of our life together. And we talked about everything. We talked about children. We talked about politics. We talked about finances. We talked about religion. She was raised in a Roman Catholic home, I was raised in a Protestant home, so we had different, uh, a different lens we were looking through, we had different roots that we were uh, basing our understanding of God's plan for us. And so we made a decision together, we, we, we talked about it, we looked at scriptures and we, we decided no matter what we were going to believe, we were just going to use this as our foundation. This was going to be our belief system, and we were going to do whatever we possibly could to say, I know I, be- I believe that as a kid growing up, but can I find it here in the Word of God? And, and there's a, a, a psychological term called belief perseverance, which all humans deal with. It's if you believe something for, you know, for so long, or you're taught something, and you believe it to be true, and then you get new information that conflicts with the old information you will actually filter the new information to fit the old information. It's called belief perseverance. Look it up. And so what we had to do was we we promised ourselves we're going to mutually and firmly dissect the Word to figure out what it is we believe, why we believe it, what are we going to teach our future children, and all that. And my hope this morning, my goal this morning, is that we can look at the concept of works found in the Scripture... In the Bible, we can look at the concept of works, and we can see what God has planned for us. We can look and see what does the word actually mean, what does it say in the con- in the context in which it's written. So, bear with me uh, today. I hope you learned something. That's my goal. Uh, starting out, the first thing I want you to learn today is the Greek word for work, or works, is ergon. It's E-R-G-O-N. You can call it ergon, ergon, I don't care how you pronounce it, it's E-R-G-O-N. And the word literally means, it comes from the primary work, ergo, which is to work, and it means to toil and act, a deed, doing, labor, work. That's what the word means. If you look up in the, you look up in the uh, Strong's Concordance, and you look at the Greek word, ergon, it means to labor, to toil, to act, to work, doing, uh, that's what the word means. Now, anybody that has been a part of a church that has taught, or anybody that has believed, or anybody that has spoken to somebody else about their belief on work, anybody that has said, yeah, I think you need to do works in order to be saved, or "or works are part of our salvation, and, and say, well, you're adding to the sacrifice of Jesus. Anybody that's been in that situation possibly has been accused of being what's called a work salvationist, or... Uh, use the million a million dollar or a hundred dollar religious word you're you're being pharisaical you're you're being a you're being a pharisee meaning you're you're saying you have to do something in order to be saved you have to do something if you are saved that is work salvation that is false teaching and my belief is if you're going to accuse me or him, or her, of being a work salvation, or a Pharisee, or that you're being Pharisaical, then you need to understand what a Pharisee is, because you just accused me of something. I'm speaking in general terms here, although I have been accused of being Pharisaical. But, if you're going to accuse me of being Pharisaical, what is a Pharisee? Do you, want you even understand what a Pharisee is? We understand what work is based on the definition, but let's look at what a Pharisee is. Now, Pharisee is interesting, and I... I've been reading about Pharisees for a decade and a half, and for some reason it took till yesterday or the day before, the day before that to realize that they weren't around from the beginning of Judaism. Dennis is shaking his head like, of course, Nate. I mean, think logically. Um, In in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra reads the law. And he's reading to the law to the nation of Israel. And while he's reading the law, the entire nation of Israel is standing up. And, and they're listening to the word intently. They're crying. They're listening to the word. And it's at that moment in time, between 100 and 175 B.C., that a group of men would meticulously study the law, and they would, they would look at the scriptures, and they would dissect what they meant. For example, someone, what commandment says thou shalt not work on the Sabbath? Anybody know offhand? Four? I'll take it, because I can't tell you exactly what one it is. <laughs> Let's just say four, okay? Thou shalt not work, thou shalt not do no work on the Sabbath. Kim, what does that mean? The scribes could tell you That's what their job was. Their job was to define what work meant. You can only carry 50 pounds of weight on the Sabbath day, but you can't walk any further than 100 yards. If somebody is sick, you can't help them get better. You can just make sure they don't get worse. Okay? Okay? Those were laws, or and it's in the Talmud. They had these oral; they had oral and written laws. that saying, if we are going to define work in order, because we want to make sure that we are in love with the word of God, we are in love with His teaching, we need to define every little jot and tittle of the law. So, when the law says, "Thou shalt not work on the Sabbath," we need to define what work is. So, I'm going to read out of a commentator that I have really enjoyed. Uh, for a long time because he writes in a pretty simple way and I think it's interesting. But it's, this, it's uh, William Barclay is his name. If you ever read his commentations, it's, it's good. But So this is what he says about the, uh, the Jewish religion and the Pharisees, that all Jewish religion is based on the first Ten Commandments and then on the Pentateuch, the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. The history of the Jews was designed to make them a people of the law. So around 100 175 B.C., when Ezra read the law in Nehemiah chapter 8, 1 through 8, at that point, in that point in time, there was a group of men that were dedicated, part of the great synagogue, to interpreting what the the law meant and the details of the law. So, the scribes, is what they were called, were, quote, Labor to define work, how they laid it down, how many paces a man might walk on the Sabbath, how heavy a burden he might carry, the things he taught he might and might not do. Then he goes on to say that there were never more than about 6,000 Pharisees at one time in the nation of Israel. And the plain fact is that if a man was going to accept and carry out every little regulation of the law, he would have time for nothing else. He had to withdraw himself to separate himself from ordinary life in order to keep the law. And that's why the Pharisees are called Pharisees because the word Pharisees means separated ones. And so these people were separated from the rest of the nation of Israel. They were taking what the scribes said, every jot and tittle of the law, and they were following it as meticulously as they possibly could. Now, it's going to get a little bit bigger. So you have the Pharisees, the 6,000 or so people that are following the scribes, the written law, in uh, by definition of what they're saying God meant when he said thou shalt not work on the Sabbath. But then there were groups of Pharisees. And the Talmud, which is a bunch of rabbinical teachings that were written and passed down, says there are seven different kinds of Pharisees. I'll go through them very quickly. There's the shoulder Pharisee, and I'll just I won't read this whole couple of pages, but the shoulder Pharisee was one who had a, a reputation for purity and goodness, but he did it so that he could be seen by other people. He, he was a shoulder Pharisee because he wanted other people to see, man, that guy's a really religious guy. And then there was the wait a little Pharisee. He spoke about the law, but he didn't follow the law. He was one of those hypocrites who just talked but didn't do. And then there was the bleeding or the bruised Pharisee, and that is the self-afflicting Pharisee. And these received their name because um, in Palestine, women were looked at very low status and no real strict Orthodox teacher could be seen talking to a woman in public, even his wife or his sister. And so they would walk around, and they would close their eyes while they were walking, and they would bump into things and walls, and so they had bruises and bumps on them. So they were called the bleeding or the uh, the bleeding or the bruised Pharisee. Then there was the pestle and mortar humpback Pharisee or the tumbling Pharisee. And this Pharisee was so focused on being seen as humble that they would walk with a hunchback and they would look and they would not lift their feet up and they would kind of kick the ground and trip over things because they wanted to be so ostentatious in their humility. There was another type of Pharisee called the ever-reckoning or compounding Pharisee. This kind of Pharisee was forever reckoning up his good deeds. He was forever striking a balance sheet between himself and God and he believed that every good deed he did put God a little further in his debt. God, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You must obey the commandments. I've done all these. Okay, now give everything you've got. He kept a tally sheet saying, God, I've done this. And, God, and Jesus says, well, you needed this too. And then there's the timid or the fearing Pharisee. He was always in dread of divine punishment. He was therefore always cleansing the outside of the cup and the platter so that he might be seen to be good. And then finally there was the God-fearing Pharisee. He was a Pharisee who really and truly loved God and was found is who found his delight in obedience to the law of God however difficult that law might be. So you had six Pharisees that would be considered kind of like, uh, not as true to the heart, and then you had the Pharisee that I would consider like the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul, who calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, genuinely, I feel like, loved God and was doing everything he could to please God, the God-fearing Pharisee. So, in order to understand I believe, works that we see in the New Testament. We've got to understand what a Pharisee is. And I think Barclay does a pretty good job in explaining what a Pharisee is. Now, a Pharisee, to surmise real quick, is someone that would take what the scribes had deciphered from the Old Testament law, the Pentateuch, the Ten Commandments, and they would meticulously do every little thing that, God said, or the scribes said, God meant. That's what a Pharisee was. And they did it to be right with God. Now, the reason I think this topic is vital to our faith is that I believe works and the concept of works throughout Christianity has been messed up. Um, There are scripture verses that we see. I'll just read two of them. One's in Ephesians chapter 2. And most of us could probably quote that passage. But in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. That is what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. I'm going to read it again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And then, if you flip over to James chapter 2, when it says, you see that faith was active along with his works, talking about Abraham, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled, that says Abraham believed God, and it was uh, counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God, you see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Yet, Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Well, which one is it? So, Martin Luther says that James was an epistle written on straw because it seemed to contradict what Paul wrote to the Ephesus church, that you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. So are you saved by your works? Are you saved by your faith? I don't know what to make of this. And and honestly, churches all across the world, they, they struggle so much with this, this concept of works that they're going to... Go, one pendulum's going to swing all the way this way and say, there's nothing you can ever do to be saved. This pendulum's going to swing all the way this way and say, if you're not doing works, you're not saved. And so we've got to look at the scriptures and say, we've got to compare these two and go, what's the balance? What's the truth of the matter? So I'm going to just tell you my opinion on scripture. I'm going to tell you what I think the Bible teaches us. And then you guys can make your own decision if it makes sense. The first fact, I believe, is very clear in the Scriptures. Undeniable fact in the Scriptures is that works of the law do not save you. You cannot be saved, righteous in God's sight, by observing the works of the law. Okay? On your notes, you're going to have Galatians chapter 2. We're going to flip over to Galatians chapter 2 and we're going to see what Paul... Writes to the church at Galatia. And it's important because he's dealing with this concept of works and faith because even Paul was dealing with this, you know, 2,000 years ago. So in Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 19, uh, it says, For through the law, and remember, I'm, I'm using the scriptures to show why I believe works of the law do not save you. And keeping in mind, When I'm talking about works of the law, I'm talking about Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pharisees, meticulously washing the outside of the cup, not crossing the threshold, picking grain on the Sabbath. Ooh, that's taboo. I'm talking about all the things that the Pharisees condemned people for. Because they were trying to be right with God. Keep that in mind too. So in Galatians chapter 2, If righteousness, another version says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If you could be righteous based on your observance of the Old Covenant law, of the meticulous keeping of it, then the sacrifice of Jesus was a moot point, is what Paul is saying right there. He says it several times. In chapter 5, of Galatians, verse 1-4. through He says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, in the context, he's talking about slavery of the law. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You have fallen away from grace. That word fallen in the Greek is ekpito, and it means to lose or to become inefficient or insufficient. That's what that word means when it says you have fallen away from grace. So what they were doing is they were saying, you are forcing circumcision, and I'm telling you, Galatians, if you... If you observe this physical law requirement of circumcision, you're now obligated to obey the entire law. And I just told you a chapter and a half ago that if Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough, if you could be if you could be uh, um, justified or considered righteous by law keeping, then the sacrifice of Christ was pointless. It's a moot point. So he says that, and then in Acts chapter 15 we see this debate. Going on in the early church, and this is keeping in mind, you had the Jews who had had the law of Moses for you know two thousand years of, of of teaching and constant. This is this is what you're supposed to do if you're a, f- a follower of Jesus. You have the covenants and you have the promises and you have the adoption. You you are the children of God, and here are the laws you must keep, or else you're out of covenant with God. And so they had all of these this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. Of obedience to the law, and then all of a sudden, the Gentiles are now coming into the church, and the first debate that they really had, a really good debate about who was going to be saved, was in Acts 15, when some of the Pharisees came and said, unless the Gentiles uh, observe the law of circumcision, and they obey the whole law of Moses, they cannot be saved. And that's what the Pharisees were saying at Acts 15, I didn't write which verses it was, but... um, uh, let's see, verse 5. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And they get into this big debate. Paul and Barnabas gets into a debate with them and they explain you know, what's been going on and then Peter gets up and says, this is what's been going on. You know, I, I've seen God is, 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 is accepting the Gentiles. And then, at the end, James, the Lord's brother, says, no, that's not what we're going to require of the Gentiles. But that's what was happening early on in the church, and the decision was, no, that's not what we're going to require. We're not going to require that they obey the law of Moses. And finally, in Romans chapter 3, the Bible says it is through the law that we become conscious of sin. It is through the law that we recognize what sin is. That was the purpose of the law. That was the purpose of God's law to Moses, to the Israelites. So we would know, don't covet. Oh, that's breaking a law? I've sinned against God? Okay. That was the whole purpose of it. But it's very clear throughout the entire scriptures that we see we cannot, are not, will not be saved by observing the Old Testament law. So when someone says, They're teaching works, and you're a Pharisee. If you're teaching that you have to obey the whole law of Moses and circumcision in order to be saved, I would say, yeah, you're being pharisaical. You're being a work salvationist. And that is unbiblical. Now, I'm going to go to the other side of the plate. And the other side of this plate is labeled why works are required... When we are a follower of Jesus, I'm not. I'm not going to bet on this, but I wonder if maybe one or ten or fifteen of you or twenty of you went. Oh my gosh, here we go. Why works are required? There we go. I didn't realize Nate was a work salvationist. Well, do me a favor and just listen to the scriptures that I'm going to read and understand that this entire Bible is divinely inspired, not just the passages that say we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our works of the law, because that's what's dealt with. And we're going to look at Ephesians 2 again, because it's interesting, is I think Paul, when it says you're saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast, he's writing this, I believe he's writing this to the Gentiles in that chapter. Does anybody want to verify that? I think he's right. When I look at... When I look at the context of the 2020 rule, it appears he's writing to the Gentiles in that passage. So were they observing the works of the law or just good works, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But in James chapter 2, there's a passage, and this is the one that Martin Luther said was an epistle written on straw. It didn't hold weight. It didn't make sense. It didn't line up with the rest of the theology that were saved by grace through faith, not by works of the law. So in James chapter 2 and verse 14, the writer, James, is, is saying he's, he's using this example of a man that has faith but he doesn't have action, doesn't really have faith, is what he's saying. What good is it, my brothers, in verse 14, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Okay? Do not disregard that question. Don't disregard it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, he has faith, but he doesn't have works, can that faith that he has, absent of works, save him? If a brother or sister is is poorly clothed and lacking of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also... Faith by itself, so he asks the question, can can that faith save him? And then he gives an example of someone that comes in that doesn't have the clothes they need or the food they need, and then someone says, hey, good luck, stay warm and well-fed, but does nothing to meet their needs. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, if it is not accompanied by action, is a dead faith. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I want to clarify, the context of this passage is not talking about Levitical law. It's not talking about Numbers 14. It's not talking about Exodus chapter 20. This is talking about real life. Your brother comes in, your sister comes in, she has a need, and you say, hey, good luck with that need, and you do nothing to fill the need. What the writer is saying is you have a dead faith. Your faith is not real. And then, he goes on to talk about Abraham. He goes, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? He even goes to the point of calling the person that believes that you can have faith and not works, foolish. That faith apart from works is useless. It's useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith was active along with his works and faith was completed By his works, and then he goes on to say something that anybody that studied theology and studied the idea of faith and works for any period of time has heard or read the concept. I've I've seen, I've heard it, I've heard it a thousand times, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not exaggerating. A thousand times you're saved by faith alone, and the term "faith alone" is only found one time in the entire Bible. One time, and we're about to read it. And it's in the context of Abraham. When he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This may trouble some of you. I'm sorry if it troubles some of you. But the scripture says here that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We have two options. We can throw out the letter that James wrote to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. We can throw it out. Or we can say, how does this fit in with Ephesians chapter 2? You're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. You can't have one without the other. And that's why I, I struggle with the concept by someone even saying, you know what? James is an epistle written on straw. James is not a really strong book because it contradicts, in my mind, what it says in Ephesians chapter two. Is that making sense? I struggle with that. It's this is either all accurate, or I don't have the wisdom to pick and choose what is from God and what is not from God. This is all from God. So, what is this concept that we have? Where am I at here? I want to make sure I don't get I don't get lost. Uh, oh, God's workmanship. I went to James two. Oh. That was James 2. Now, we go to Ephesians chapter 2. We just read a minute ago in Ephesians chapter 2 that you're saved by grace, through faith, and not by your works. But then he says something very interesting that I think helps us tie into James chapter 2 when somebody needs clothing and food. In Ephesians chapter 2, he goes on when he says... After he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. No one can say, Look at me. Um, For we are his workmanship. That word workmanship, I, I forgot to write, I forgot to write it down. I'm just going off memory now. But that word workmanship, I think it's forty one sixty one in the Strong's concordance, and it means product. That word means product. We were created in Christ Jesus. We are a product of Christ Jesus. We are a jar of clay in Christ Jesus. We are His workmanship in Christ Jesus. To do what? To do good works. That's why God created us. So when you argue, I'm not saved by my works... You were created to do good works. We talked about it last week in Luke 17. Increase our faith. Increase our faith. And what does he do? He gives them a story about a servant who merely did his job. And you look, I'm not going to go back and preach last week again, but you look at the scriptures and you look at what we talked about last week and Paul calls himself a bondservant, a voluntary slave. And so when I look at Ephesians, and it says here, for we are His product, His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is our whole job. And so we, I think this teaching that is out there that says works has nothing to do with our salvation is a teaching that is basically saying... You can just mentally accept that Jesus died on a cross for you, and you're good. And it's an easy, toast, watered-down version of the true gospel. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. That's what the Bible says. And in Matthew chapter 7, on the sermon when Jesus, and we'll talk about it in, who knows, two months, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, and these disciples come to him, And he says, away from me, I never knew you. And they're like, what are you talking about? We cast out demons, we perform miracles, we prophesied in your name. What, 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 I don't understand. And he says, only he who does the will of my Father. Only he who does the will of my Father. There is a doing that's associated with faith that tries to get wiped out by some people because they feel like if you're adding to the sacrifice on the cross... You're nullifying the cross. I'm like, no. What Paul is saying, what James is saying, what Paul is saying in in Ephesians 2 is that the whole purpose of you being a Christian is to glorify God and to serve Him. And if you're not doing that, you don't have faith! (laughs) Because it's impossible to please God if you don't have faith. Is that making sense? How you can marry these two concepts together? You're all looking at me like, no. No. I'll try again. I'll start over. All right. Some people believe that when you die, I know people like this. I have friends. I have acquaintances. They believe that when you die, you stand before God or you kneel before God and you've got this good bucket of deeds and you have a bad bucket of deeds. And if that good bucket of deeds outweighs the bad bucket of deeds, you're let in through the purity gates. I have friends that believe that. Imagine having a tally sheet when you go to meet the king of all kings. Imagine you walk up to God and you you, you you know, you die and then you go up there and you maybe you float up. I don't know. I I can't imagine it. I mean maybe you fly up. It says that no mind has conceived, yours heard, or you know What God has in store for those who love Him. So let's just say that we get to fly. And we're just floating along. And we go to God. And before God even says the word, you say, okay God, let me talk. Check this out. On March 1st, 2023, I mowed the elderly lady's neighbor lawn next door. And then I went home and organized my garage to give you glory. And then... On Sunday, March second, the next day, I went to church and I served in the children's ministry. And I I served in the children's ministry and I showed my godly patience when I didn't smack little Billy while he was being disruptive. And then on Monday, March third, I went to work and on the way to work, are you keeping track, God? I bought my coworker a Starbucks and I said, "Hey, how was your weekend?" And they said, "It was good. We went camping." And he's like, "Oh, great! I went to church." Planting seeds, God, that's the third one. And then on March 4th, you get the point. You've got this tally sheet to say, hey God, look what I did, look what I did. So now you owe me salvation. Jesus says that in Ephesians 2. You're saved by grace through faith, and this not your own. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, So that no one may boast. Going back to Luke 17, if you have done your job as a servant, do not brag about it. You've simply done what you were supposed to do. That is the works that were created in Christ Jesus, the workmanship. In Matthew 5, Jesus addresses the disciples, going back to the Pharisees. He he addresses the disciples. And he says in Matthew chapter 5, unless, I'm just going to see if I can remember it, but I'm already there. 17. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven in heaven for i tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven now I may study this in more depth than I have in the past, and I may come up to another conclusion of what Jesus is saying here. But currently, what I believe Jesus is saying here is I'm about to lay out the real truth of my religion. I'm about to lay out the real truth of my faith and faith in me. And if you think that you can be right before me based on your observance of the law, you better be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees have dedicated their life to following every got an iota of the law and if you think you're going to get saved or be saved by being a good enough person by filling your checklist you better be better than them and they went that's impossible we can't we can't be better than the pharisees we can't observe the law better than nobody can observe the law better than the pharisees and jesus says exactly that's my point you need me to die on that cross in order for you to be saved. Because if I don't die on that cross, you're all in trouble. That's that's the gospel message. And when he says this to the Pharisees, or he says this to his disciples about the Pharisees, he's saying later on, to reiterate, you were created in me to do those good things which I have prepared in advance for you to do. So are works part of your salvation? Yes, they are. They are part of who you are in Christ Jesus. Can you do enough that God says, now I owe you? No, because you were already bought. That is your role within the kingdom. And if you think that you are a soldier, but you're not going to war, are you really a soldier? If you think that you are a servant, but you're not serving, are you really a servant? Is that too harsh? I don't think so. I think that's real, and I think too many people are just telling you what you want to hear, which is just believe that Jesus died on the cross, and when you get to heaven and die, when you die and go to heaven, God's going to say, well done, my good and faithful, and leave out the servant part. But that's not what it says in the Scriptures. It says, when you go, He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. A servant serves, and when he serves, he should not go to God and say, look what I did. He's only done what he was called to do when he, by choice, accepted the grace which was offered him. Look at Paul's response in 2 Timothy. I'm going to hammer down on this subject, this idea that yes, I do believe it is part of our salvation. It's not an earned part, it is part of our faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. In 2 Timothy Chapter 4 Paul says this For I am in verse 6 for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come I am getting ready to meet my maker I'm getting ready to meet Jesus I have fought the good fight I have finished the race I have kept the faith Henceforth Or the King James or the uh, NIV says, "Now, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing." There is a concept in every single letter, or or throughout the letters in the New Testament, that call us to a life of service to the king. And Paul went through that life. Paul went through that life of service. And he says, I I am being poured out as a drink offering. My departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. If you look at Luke chapter, or I'm sorry, James chapter 2, we always focus on Abraham. I've always focused on Abraham. What good is it, my brothers, if you have faith and not deeds? He talks about Abraham and how he was credited, credited righteousness. But then he tells a story about a woman named Rahab. And we don't always study Rahab. We just kind of stick at Abraham and go, hey, the father of faith. But let's look at Rahab. In in Joshua chapter 2, they sent spies out Jericho was it? Hey, Jericho, was that right? And they said to the spies, they came out and said, "Yeah, this is going to be great." But the spies get the spies get uh, up in Rahab's house, and Rahab, uh, she's worried. She's like, "I heard about you guys. I heard about the red. Sea. I heard about sea parting, and we know that you, you guys are going to whoop us. And um, I'm, I'm going to need a favor here. Uh, can you can you not kill me and my family? I won't tell on you. I promise." And they go, okay, we will make you a deal. You don't say anything. You don't say anything. And I'll spare you and your family and all, everybody a part of your family. have them in this house. But you need to put a scarlet piece of yarn on the window so when we attack this place, we know to spare you. The spy said something interesting. It says, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithful with you. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of ours, oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father mother, brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a, ban- a hand is laid on anyone who is With you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. If you keep your word, which you made, then you'll be spared. You'll be saved. If you keep your oath. Put this in context, brothers and sisters. James chapter 2 faith without works is dead I find it interesting that God through the Holy Spirit decided to use Rahab as an example of faith without works and you read that story and it says if you keep your oath you will be spared but if you do not all bets are off all bets are off her faith was made complete by her actions. We have got to accept that James chapter 2 is from the word the mouth of the Lord. We have got to accept that Ephesians chapter 2 was from the mouth of the Lord. You you can't take one out and say it's not valid because it doesn't fit your theology. You have to make both fit your theology because that's God's theology. There's the way you understand it, the way I understand it, and the way God meant it. Let's get on the third page of how God meant it, not how we understand it. If it conflicts and all that stuff, you know what? We're human. We're going to make mistakes. We're not all. We don't have the wisdom. None of us have the wisdom of God. But the way God wrote this word, that's why he says study it and search for it like you would hidden treasure. Seek it. Seek the w- wisdom of God. So we can understand what is God actually saying. What does God mean when He says faith about works is dead? What does He mean when He says you're saved by grace through faith, not by works? Well, I hope I explained it in a way that we were created in Christ to do good works. And if your faith is not leading you to taking care of your brothers and sisters, to loving one another, to working on your uh, your your Christ-like nature, to becoming more patient becoming more loving, if it's not leading you to that position where's your faith? Is it a live faith or is it a dead faith? And I'm going to close with, with Luke chapter 17 that Luke 17 passage that I spoke on last week increase our faith well, what? will any of you who has a servant plowing or keep Keeping sheep, say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at my table, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. So we cannot say to God, look at me. I did this. I worked in the children's ministry. I was an elder. I was a preacher. I was working the sound. I was sweeping the floors. I was cleaning the toilets. I was doing this, God. God's going, that's what you were created to do. That's your goal. That's your job. That's your job. I don't know what time we started. If it went along, well, it went along. Uh, I, who has communion this morning Dennis does good to have you guys back Lee. we were thinking about you a lot while you were gone hope you had a good trip